0: This is Macro Horizons, episode 167, The Core Issue, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of April 18th. And if we learned anything from the March inflation data, it was an answer to the question, when is a 6.5% increase in core consumer prices a reason to buy bonds? please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. In the week just past in the U.S. Treasury market, we saw what we will characterize as a remarkably impressive correction in the price action that had defined the bulk of the last several weeks in trading. Specifically, what had been a decided bear flattening trend that brought Treasury yields to the cycle highs has corrected into a bull steepener. Now, the steepening aspect of it, will suggest, is more episodic and a function of the supply that came online, both on the corporate side as well as from the U.S. Treasury. What's more notable is that this has occurred with yields lower on an outright basis. Now, ostensibly, the market used the disappointing core CPI print as an excuse to trigger the buying. But... The technicals have been oversold for quite some time, and the curve skewed toward its flattening extremes, both of which create the perfect dynamic for an in-range correction. Such a move in this context is more tactical in nature and will provide investors the opportunity to reset flattening trades. This holds true for both 2's 10s as well as 5's 30s we're not yet at the point in the cycle where one might assume that this degree of steepening will translate through into a continuation. Said differently, this is not the beginning of a broad-based reversal, but rather a tactical move that will ultimately resolve in the resumption of the prior flattening trend. The bigger question in our mind is whether or not it ultimately ends with a reestablishment of the trend toward higher rates. We've been of the mind that the second quarter of 2022 was always poised to represent the upper bound for yields and that at the end of the day, for 10 and 30s at least, the year would be defined as a higher range than we saw in 2021 in terms of US rates, but, nonetheless our range for yields. In the very front end of the curve, however, twos, threes, and fives will continue to have upside as the year plays out. The caveat there being if one looks at the terminal rate assumption that's being priced in Fed Funds Futures, for example, you can see that 3% was reached in the week just past. That suggests, to us at least, that the market is comfortable pushing back against what is perceived to be a Fed in maximum hawkish mode as we move forward into an environment where core inflation might actually have been transitory and a function of pandemic-related distortions. As we consider inflation data during the second quarter of this year, the base effects do imply that the peaks for year-over-year inflation have already been established, especially on the core side. But one has to assume that to a large extent, people have incorporated that into their trading outlook. And so what we'll be anticipating is that we'll see a continued drift lower in used auto prices home price appreciation start to moderate in terms of the gains that are translated through to the core CBI series, and at the end of the day, a more durable divergence between headline inflation being driven by gasoline and food prices and the balance of the core inflation complex, mean reverting, albeit still at elevated levels versus what we saw prior to the pandemic. So we got March's
2: inflation data, and it was 6.5% year-over-year on a core basis, but yet that was disappointing?
0: I would argue that what we're doing as a market is we're entering the stage where the treasury market, which had been content to push forward with the process of repricing to a higher-rate environment, is now searching for incremental reasons to buy the dip. So in the details of the core inflation print, what we saw was that the three-tenths of a percent increase during the month of March was notably lower than the half-a-point consensus and marked the lowest monthly gain since 2021. More importantly, when we look at the details within the core CPI series, what we see is that the used car series declined 3.8%, which was effectively one of the two core pillars that had been keeping core inflation on an upward trajectory throughout much of the last 18 months.
2: So call the factors that inspired that core CPI miss the variables formerly known as transitory. And I do think that the divergence between core and headline prices highlights something that's probably going to be very topical as we start to make our way through the second quarter and into the summer months, which is that given the war in Ukraine, given the ongoing supply chain issues that continue to linger in the pandemic's 17th inning, there will still be upward pressure on prices, And that will probably be most pronounced on the headline series. So the question then becomes, is the Fed's laid out focus on core inflation going to mean that moderating gains there will lead to a less aggressive path of normalization at, say, the July FOMC meeting? Or will the fact that headline inflation is going to remain high keep the committee resolute in their mission to continue pushing policy rates higher?
0: Well, not to be too cynical, and on the topic of resolute, I think a lot of it has to do with the political side. Let us not forget the midterm elections are in November, and given that the Biden administration has made inflation one of their number one economic agenda items, it goes without saying that between an aggressive Fed and the release of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve— that the white house is doubling down on the war against inflation let's see how that plays out
2: and that makes the response in the market to cpi all the more noteworthy we saw two-year yields that traded as high as 259 on monday reach 229 on wednesday in the wake of the ppi release and this hints at the dynamic that the market was content to price in a meaningful amount of hawkishness Exactly as we've been discussing, Ian. And now with some evidence that inflation may be moderating even without the benefit of tighter monetary policy, investors are walking back some of the more aggressive hawkish assumptions. Now, I think you and I are on the same page that that doesn't meaningfully reduce the probability of a 50-bit rate hike in May, probably not even in June, but it does suggest that maybe at the July meeting, we will see a downshift back to what was originally the consensus and 25 basis point hikes at every meeting.
0: Well, one thing that I am reasonably confident about is that there will not be a 50 basis point rate hike at the August meeting. Forecaster of the month. But in all seriousness, we are reaching a point in the cycle where the shape of the curve has gone from being an anomaly to being a – essential question to the outright level of rates during the balance of 2022. And by this I'm simply making the observation that 2s tens inverted, 530s inverted, almost every curve except for the important one from the Fed's perspective, which is the 3 month bill versus 10 year curve inverted. That was quickly followed by a relatively solid rejection of that move, and we have seen the curve re-steepen out, but, and I think this is the important part of the move, that occurred in a bearish fashion. So if we were, in fact, entering an environment where we were going to see sustainably higher 10 and 30-year yields, for example, 10-year yields poised to breach the last cycle's peak of 326, then we would, all else being equal, have assumed that the most recent rejection of the flattening would have occurred in bearish terms and pushed 10-year yields closer to 3%. The fact that it didn't occur that way and the fact that it was largely a two-year lead and implicitly Fed expectations-led move does speak to the fact that investors are starting to get increasingly apprehensive about the FOMC's ability to orchestrate a soft landing for the real economy. And let's face it, if we look back throughout the history of monetary policy, the one thing that I can say with a straight face remains remarkably elusive is a soft landing.
2: And despite the fact that inflation underwhelmed, prices on a year-over-year basis are still rising at their fastest rate since 1982. And this gets at one of our most frequently fielded client questions, which is, why are 10-year yields not higher? Isn't the market on edge that these higher prices are going to in turn translate to individuals demanding higher wages, which then increases spending capacity, which then drives higher inflation? Looking at average hourly earnings decidedly in negative territory would suggest that that's not really a risk, at least not
0: yet. Well, and I think that that's an important dynamic to keep in mind. So we're decidedly in the camp that the Fed, in their effort to normalize rates and take the upside risk off of the inflation profile, is consciously making the decision to forego a degree of growth to retain credibility as an inflation fighter. That does imply that they're bringing a recession forward, but we're not suggesting that they're bringing a recession forward to this year. Entirely different issues, clearly. But more importantly, within the narrative of wage gains leading to a inflationary spiral over time, there is an implicit assumption that Powell has it right when he says that the economy is currently strong enough to handle higher rates. Is the economy strong enough to handle higher rates this quarter and next? Unquestionably. But is the economy strong enough to handle higher rates for a sufficient period to get that bargaining dynamic between wage earners, unionized or otherwise, to push nominal and subsequently real wages higher? It would be nice to assume that that was in the cards. But the reality is, for us to assume that that was in the cards, we would probably need to be much more optimistic, period.
2: And let's not forget before the pandemic the fed really struggled to get inflation to two percent from the downside achieving enough inflation in the system to meet their target was a challenge for the fomc and this is another delineation of the two schools of thought in the market which is has the pandemic derailed the structural deflationary forces that we have seen persist over the past 20 years or so or are those background factors still in place just being overwhelmed at the moment, given the massive economic shock that was brought on by COVID-19. We're in the latter camp, and a big part of that has to do with technological advances, what that means for productivity, what that means for bargaining power for human workers, and the trend of automation that was already adding to the deflationary backdrop before the pandemic that was only accelerated during COVID. We've already seen several components of the service sector opt to hire fewer people in favor of installing more machines. Whether that be kiosks or a greater reliance on apps, both of those nuances do not advocate for significantly higher real wages.
0: Now the counter to this is that because of the global supply chain issues as well as geopolitical uncertainty, The U.S. economy is at a watershed moment in terms of getting resources from overseas, the flip side being the reverse of globalization or onshoring in one way, shape, or form. While that certainly is topical and we suspect actively underway, the other issue in this context is it's inflationary, yes, but it also significantly compresses profitability. I think that that will be one of the major inhibitions to a wholesale shift back to onshore production. In practical terms, if we start to see a more meaningful hit to earnings with the backdrop of higher borrowing costs, that's going to create a more significant repricing in risk assets, which translates through to tighter financial conditions and complicates the Fed's normalization ambitions all the more.
2: But to me, the complication of normalization ambitions should point toward a flatter curve, Why, Ian, do you think we've steepened out so significantly? 210s closing in on 40 bips is a decided reversal from what had been that massive flattening move that got us inverted as recently as last week.
0: I can summarize it in a word, and that's issuance. When we look at the nature of the price action that has occurred over the last several trading sessions, we've had two decided inflows in terms of new issuance. One is on the corporate side. There were several large, heavily duration-weighted deals that hit the market. And then, of course, the U.S. Treasury Department was a big seller of 10s and 30s via the reopening auctions. I would argue that the price action was best characterized as a rally in the treasury market in which the long end lagged. Now that does sound a bit nuanced or as if it is an attempt to avoid acknowledging the steepness of the curve. But in the context of the shape of the curve, had it been only a supply issue and the overall level of rates relatively stable, one could have safely assumed that it would have been a bear steepener. The fact that the front end was bid, which was admittedly consistent with taking out some of the medium-term upside risks for the Fed funds rate, nonetheless, the overall treasury market rallied. And this reflects what we'll argue is a market that has been looking for a reason to start to scale into duration at what represents, certainly for this cycle, particularly attractive outright levels in yields. So call that a parallel rally
2: that was steepened by supply. And what we did see this week were two tailed long-end auctions, tens tailed by 3.1 basis points, and the long bond by a full basis point, very much in keeping with this idea that the outright level of rates and Treasury's position in the global financial system We'll bring in buyers to these massive auctions, but depending on the yield moves around the events themselves, sometimes a bit of a primary market discount will be required. I would argue this week reflected exactly that dynamic.
0: And this is very consistent with the time-tested adage that there's no such thing as a bad bond, just a bad price. Ben, that's something to keep in mind when one considers attempting to pass through inflation costs to higher wages. Wait, what is... Higher wages? Oh, Ben, don't worry. They're not for you. In the week ahead, the Treasury market will have a much lighter slate of economic data. Between a few updates on housing and the Philadelphia Fed manufacturing data, we don't anticipate that there will be a great deal to alter the broader macroeconomic outlook just as importantly on the supply side, we're coming off of a week that was particularly duration-heavy with 10s and 30s and are presented with a week that has a $16 billion 20-year auction as well as $20 billion of new five-year tips. Interpreting the performance of tips auctions as it relates to the nominal market has always been a dubious process, if nothing else, and the reality is that Stronger demand for inflation over the next five years says remarkably little about forward demand for nominal duration, especially in an environment with a flattening curve and a Fed that has signaled its willingness to do whatever it takes to keep inflation contained. As we ponder real yields and the prospects for 10-year reals to get back into positive territory, we can't help but think about the correlation between higher real yields and underperformance in equities. The ramifications from higher real yields are difficult to ignore, and we would suspect that positive 10-year real yields would take the edge off of any potential upside in the U.S. equity market. While the Fed has yet to officially announced the balance sheet runoff program the march fomc minutes did a very good job of outlining what investors should expect specifically 60 billion dollars a month in treasuries ramping up in three months 35 billion dollars a month in mortgages also ramping up over the course of three months now such a pace even if reached earlier Won't necessitate outright selling in treasuries, certainly not for the next several years, but could potentially lead the Fed to sell in the mortgage space. This is something that will remain a background factor and we'll be tracking if for no other reason than 30-year fixed mortgage rates are drifting closer to 5% than they've been in quite some time. Bringing this back to the TIPS market, quantitative easing and outright bond buying was seen as having a much bigger impact in the TIPS market The logic there being that the Fed's operations represented a disproportionately large amount of the float, if not the outright market, in tips. Fast forward to the second half of this year, when the Fed is expected to be actively unwinding the balance sheet via runoffs, it follows intuitively that there will be a bias for higher real yields, if nothing else. We'll add that this trend will have the benefit of more treasury issuance in the sector on an outright basis as the treasury department has already signaled. In short, at this point, we're unwilling to fade the modestly bullish price action that is developing in the treasury market, although we anticipate that the steepening nature of the move is short-lived and largely a function of supply. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks And condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And with April showers, May allergies, and the pandemic entering its 17th inning, what's not to like about spring 2022? Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode, so please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingan at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative.
1: This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter. And information may be available to BMO and or affiliates that is not reflected herein.